Hello and welcome to Peaceful at Heart. My name is Cedric Martin and I'll be your host. Each episode, we're going to take a closer look at the book Peaceful at Heart, Anabaptist Reflections on Healthy Masculinity. We're going to jump into the chapters, hear from the authors, and think a little bit more about what healthy masculinity means in our modern context. Joining us today is Tom Yoder Neufeldt. Welcome, Tom, and thanks for your work on the book so that we can discuss it today. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you, uh, Cedric. Um, uh, thank God, during this pandemic, uh, my wife and I and my kids who don't live with us are have stayed healthy, so we're mm. grateful for that. Good, I'm glad to hear that. I, uh, I'm excited to talk to you about your the, your chapter in the book here, Tom. I, I really appreciated your perspective and, and biblical approach to the chapter. Now, in your chapter, you mentioned that it's it's crucial to see the Bible as as the Word of God, and you also mentioned that it, that wrestling with the Bible is inescapable. What what does that look like to you? How how do we get there? Um, I think it's really important uh, that how we read the Bible, um, with what disposition we read the Bible when it comes to trying to place the Bible in relation to masculinity. Um, the Bible is not just about God, in my view, uh, nor is it just a record of people's ideas about God, which we can take or leave, but it is the place or the vehicle by which God speaks to us. And I think the scriptures are our are, are shared foundation, even for our discourse with each other. And we may not always be aware of that, but I think it's a, I think it's in many ways foundational for the church as a community across all kinds of races, classes, regions, uh, languages, uh, what that it's one of the things that holds us together, or mm. to put it maybe in a better term, it's one of the one of the means the spirit has to to uh, hold us together, um, but also to uh, encourage us and to prod us and to unsettle us. Um, so, I don't want to like the Bible only when it agrees with me, mm. um, or uh, nor do I want to. Uh, like it only when it agrees with what I think it should say. Um, uh, I think I'm saying a temptation all of us face many times, right? We mm. prefer to read those parts uh, of the Bible, if, uh, if at all, when they make common cause with what we uh, already believe. Um, I think... In my own personal experience, we need the Bible most especially um, to rattle our certainties, um, to shake us up. Um, hmm. As I say at the end of the chapter, um, I think to read the Bible uh, with the purpose of hearing the voice of God always takes a great deal of guts, or we might say faith, courage even. Uh, 
Um, you ask about wrestling, and that's not unrelated to this. Um, I've spent my virtually my whole life wrestling with the Bible. And sometimes wrestling is fun. Uh, you grow up as a kid doing that uh, with your brothers. I had two brothers, no sisters. So wrestling was largely uh, a, give, uh, a given. Uh, sure. So sometimes wrestling is fun. Um, I gave my scholarly energies to that. But sometimes wrestling leaves you injured. Um, and I think it's that way with the Bible. I, I often don't like what I read and am forced to grapple with, uh, to be confronted by. Uh, but if I share the church's faith that the scriptures are given breath by God to give, to show us the way of life, then I'd better stay there until I have extracted a blessing. And I'm referring now to that famous story of Jacob at the river Jabbok, where he wrestles all night long with this, with this man. And he refuses to let up on this life and death struggle until he has extracted a blessing. Um, and then in the morning, it's no longer the man. He, refer, he calls the place Peniel, which means the face of God. He's wrestled with God. And for me, that has become almost the perfect um, image for the way I think of uh, wrestling with the Bible. Uh, it's both blessing and challenge, fun and peril, all at the same time. I've been a scholar for many years, uh, and I really am very familiar with all of the critical issues and questions uh, that, uh, uh, that make the Bible such a difficult uh, document. But I've had many, many more experiences um, of being bowled over by the beauty and the force of grace that emerges from the pages. Um, and sometimes they catch you by surprise in places you wouldn't expect them. Uh, ultimately, I experience the Bible as a place where we encounter the life-giving God. And I think that's specifically relevant to the question of men striving for a more peaceable masculinity. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that leads me to my, my next question then. So what, what role does masculinity play uh, perhaps in your faith or, or in the church, uh, where, do, where do we see men today? Yeah, <laughs> those, are, those are really, that's a whole range of questions right there. Um, I will admit right off the start that I have not made masculinity a major focus um, in my, um, uh, in my uh, thinking uh, mm. and in my work. Um, so I'm very grateful for Don Neufeld, the editor, one of the editors, having invited me to address particularly the question of how men and Bible intersect, uh, or how masculinity and the Bible intersect. Um, I'm sure, I have no doubt, that there are all kinds of unexamined, hidden ways in which masculinity 
and certain understandings of masculinity have shaped my faith and my way of participating in the life of the church. Um, I think where I've become conscious of it in recent decades, uh, perhaps first in relation to how I relate to women in the church, especially also to uh, women in leadership in the church, and have put a good deal of energy into trying to pry the doors open. Now, that in many of our churches, that's long dim memory. It isn't in many even today. Open the doors to full participation of women. I think that that has something to do with my own understandings of myself as a man. Uh, even if I haven't made that a specific um, point of exploration. Um, very personally, uh, I, have, I have been deeply impacted by one of the precious fruits of feminism, which mm -hmm. has been to excavate or to unearth or uncover the feminine images of God in the Bible. And I have made it a point frequently in my praying to imagine God not as a man, as an all-powerful man, but as a, as a woman. And so I've been much drawn in my own personal scholarship to the figure of wisdom in the Bible, which in the Jewish imagination was a way of talking about how God draws near to us. And I find it so interesting that in the New Testament, Jesus is talked about as God's wisdom, mm. which is very much a feminine and often explicitly feminized understanding. So, I think that that has helped me to try to place my own masculinity in a different relationship, also within the biblical metaphors for God. Um, and maybe to decenter my masculinity as sort of the, the normative ways of thinking about God. That's, that's a very personal comment, mm -hmm. uh, but it's a way in which my, my own praying and my own scholarship have have intersected and I think have helped me to um, have helped me to perhaps reach grow however in small steps towards a more uh, healthy masculinity um, I remember having the great pleasure one time of being asked to preach in a church in Winnipeg where my parents were there on Mother's Day. <laughs> And so I asked people, look at the person next to you. And I was able to look right at my mom and said, there is the image of God. <laughs> so you want to know what God looks like? Look at your mom. And I think for many of the folks, it was quite a conservative congregation. That was, I mean, it was thoroughly biblical. <laughs> but I think it was a completely novel way. And hopefully it jostled everybody's, uh, you might, understandings of masculinity as well. So, so that was the one dimension. I think in more recent years, I, like everybody, have been impacted deeply by the church's struggle for faithfulness in relation to 
um, the intersection of Bible and sexuality, whether it's uh, LGBTQ concerns or whether now more recently in terms of where the gender, uh, uh, how genders are constructed, etc., all of those are enormously huge questions for us that require enormous patience, but they have some impact and will continue to have impact on our understandings of masculinity. Um, and I think one of the concerns I would have is that we not simply sideline the Bible mm. because it's from another era when those folks didn't know as much as we do. I think that there are many ways in, in which we can learn um, lessons, approaches, dispositions that will help us to traverse this and to live into faithfulness together as a very diverse community also on the issue of masculinity. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're, you're bringing back sort of what you're talking about just just before about wrestling with the Bible and, and how these questions can be can be thought of and, and not sidelining. Yeah, absolutely. I um. I, I reading a little bit further into your chapter, um, thinking more about masculinity, you say that Jesus is the perfect man and you use the term deliberate vulnerability. I, I wonder if you could tell us more about what that means and, and what ways that we could think of deliberately being deliberately vulnerable today. You know, I, I thought that that phrase, the perfect man would uh, w w w would be noticed because it seems so insensitive to where we're at in our time. <laughs> but it's a phrase that I translated very literally from Ephesians 4, uh, verse uh, 13. And most translations today like to leave that they, they they don't really translate. They translate it as full maturity, etc. Mm -hmm. Now I get that, and that's not bad. But for the purposes of this chapter, I wanted us to sort of first of all deal with the fact that this this man Jesus is identified with you might say perfect masculinity. In fact, the term is not the perfect human, but the perfect man. Because Jesus doesn't fit today's or first century notions of perfection. I mean, if you think about this, he's got no home. Uh -huh. He's got no wife. He's got no kids. He seems dependent on wealthy women to pay the bills. I mean, what kind of a role model for masculinity is that? Um, so... But, but I don't think this was lost on first century believers. And that should be taken very seriously. Um, I mean, if you, and then add something here, J just to, to remember as maybe what is a, 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 the ultimate affront to perfect masculinity is that he turns, he tells his followers to turn the cheek. Tell that to a hockey player. Um, he, t you know, you get thrown off the team, turn the cheek, um, love your enemies, forgive 
70 times 7, um, imitate the least of those among you. They're your role model, i.e. children. Um, speak the truth always, regardless of consequence. I mean, when you think about this, that is what I would call deliberate vulnerability. Hmm. And if you take as the ultimate example, Jesus's own going to the cross defenselessly for the sake even of those who put him there. I mean, you, how is that an image of masculinity that doesn't undo most of all of our inherited notions? Um, we used to call this, by the way, non-resistance. That word has almost disappeared in favor of non-violence, etc. cetera. Um, mm. But I think it's a very important word because it sort of rubs the wrong way. And that's why I chose the word deliberate vulnerability as a way of just shocking us into an awareness of how countercultural uh, the perfect man actually is. Um, so as much as I value and treasure my role as a father, as a husband, as a successful, fulfilled professional, um, I find Jesus terribly challenging, precisely as a model of masculinity. And that's why I think this phrase, the perfect man, is so useful for this chapter precisely because it's so subversive uh, in that regard. Um, now, I think he's a challenge in a number of ways. If you are a man who is, who's gotten the short end of the stick, who either because of class or race or sexuality is essentially powerless, Jesus the perfect man becomes somebody who is with you in the trenches. It's, it's interesting, for instance, that the letter to the Hebrews talks about Jesus is like us in every way. And he's saying that to people who are struggling with suffering. So sometimes the ultimate example of masculinity Jesus represents is one of solidarity with the weakest and most vulnerable in society. And perhaps for men who find themselves in that location, the biggest challenge is, is to hold on to that and to realize God is with me in this, and this isn't the end of the story, right? But for mm -hmm. folks like myself, I mean, it's obvious because this is being filmed, I'm white, um, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm white, I'm economically secure, I have books behind me, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for me to say Jesus is the perfect man is a challenge because it pushes me to follow him to the margins. It follows, it pushes me as a disciple, as somebody who wants to be a learner of Jesus, uh, to a conscious, deliberate self-awareness of my social location. Um, I think it means becoming aware of my own uh, 
defensiveness, uh, which I know is often there when I'm challenged. Um, but it maybe also is an invitation for me to exercise my agency for the sake of those uh, who need empowerment. So it's not just a matter of, it's not just a matter of getting rid of everything. It's a matter of using what I have not as privilege for myself, but as a gift to offer others. So I think, I think that's entirely in keeping with what Jesus uh, intended to say. I think Jesus will collide with almost all of our inherited notions of masculinity, of strength, agency, status, uh, whether we're at the winning or at the losing end of that spectrum. Um, I'm struck by the fact that um, Jesus told us that the first will be last and the last will be first. So that's perhaps the ultimate shocker for inherited masculines like myself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what you're saying is, is true. And, and what you're, what you're highlighting in the, uh, in your chapter, it talks a bit more about other men that are also not conforming or, or uh, are, are the ideal template of a masculine person. Um, and, and you're talking about uh, they're decidingly not to conform to these sort of norms. I, I wonder how that might translate today. How, we, how do we think about those that are on the fringes? Do we listen to the marginalized more in our community? Uh, I wonder if you could say more about our, our modern context. Yeah, I, I think that's a very, that's a really important question, uh, Cedric. Um, I think in some ways, you're right, I've just spoken to some of that. Um, but let me add this. I don't, as I said before, I don't want to downplay at all the importance of being a caring, loving, supportive husband, a reliable and loving father, a productive worker, etc. all those things that seem to be traditional values. Mm. Uh, I didn't highlight them as much perhaps as I should have in, in, in the chapter. But I just want to make sure that people understand that a good part of the Bible is dedicated to training men to be more loving husbands, to be less abusive parents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. But what struck me in this chapter again and again, and it was really maybe almost the most important um, insight, given the question I was asked to work on, is how many times those who are on the margins of what we might call perfect manhood are brought to the forefront. I mean, the ultimate example, of course, is Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting that the, the guy who washes feet, who eats with sinners, uh, who asks, to asks us to emulate children is the one we call Lord. Well, think about that contradiction. I know some people don't like using the word Lord. I think it's fantastic that you have to call the slave your boss. Mm. The first shall be last. <laughs> and that if you're a boss, you've got to learn from your employees what it means to be a boss. I mean, that's where I think this lordship and servanthood is such a delicious rub. 
But what's so interesting to me is how many characters sort of are in that interesting, very vulnerable place. Jesus, as I said, is a good example. But think about Paul. He appears to be wifeless. I know there are debates. I've taught Paul for many years. And, you know, every once in a while, somebody comes along and says, uh, yeah, he must have been. Well, there's no evidence that he was ever married. There's no evidence that he had kids. Um, he was in trouble with his congregations. I mean, this is so interesting. Half the New Testament is dedicated or bears the name of Paul. In his own lifetime, the Corinthians were talking, bad-mouthing him. The guy doesn't know how to talk. He sounds really bombastic in his letter, and then he shows up, and he's a, he's a loser. He's a weakling. And so much of, much of Paul's energies had to go into this strange mix, and that needs to be part of our discussion of masculinity along the way. This strange mix of actually trying to empower these congregations without having them look on him with disdain. In other hmm. words, the Corinthians were having a hard time. How do you treat as an authority somebody who offers himself as a servant? Every parent knows that with their kids. This interesting interplay of needing to be to offer discipline and being gracious at the same time. Um, so, right. I mean, you're nodding your head knowingly, either as a father yourself or somebody who's been fathered. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I think we all know that. So that's part of this interesting picture we have of our, you might say, heroes in the faith. I had to think about why are the eunuchs for the kingdom? privileged. That's Jesus talks about that, right? Yeah. It's so yeah. fascinating to me because if you go to parts of the Old Testament, you don't want eunuchs in the temple because they're not really men. They've been either injured or they've been whatever by birth. They're not, they're not going to procreate. So we don't want them here. They receive special standing in the kingdom of God. Go figure. So how does that play into our understandings of masculinity? That's got to play a role. Um, now, you ask about today. I think we've struggled really hard as a church family around sexuality and gender identity um, as, as they collide with inherited notions of masculinity. And we're being challenged, I think, at sort of some of the most profound levels uh, in terms of how do we read the Bible? How do we think of Jesus? How do we think of ourselves, uh, etc.? And I hope, I want to honor that, that search for faithfulness. And it presents us with real challenges not to sort of go into our secluded groups where we all agree with each other, either pro or con on this, that, or the other issue, but how we can somehow stay bound together in the body of Christ in which the scriptures continue to have, to serve as a kind of ground and guide for us in our search for uh, faithfulness and not be pushed aside as irrelevant. Um, I think the, the, the strange collection of men that are pretty easy to find in the Bible, should be an important part of our conversation with each other around masculinity. 
So uh, what I hear you saying is that we need to think more about what our how we respond to to challenges as a church community and not just within the Anabaptist communities, but even just the broader Christian communities. Is that what I'm hearing from you? Yeah. The body of Christ is bigger than the Anabaptist community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know which part of the body we are (laughs) to use Paul's image, whether we're the little finger, the luscious lips or that precious unseen part that we cover up, (laughs) but need desperately, you know, I don't know. Uh, But yeah, um, I think, I think that's a very apt observation. So at the end of your chapter, Tom, you, you mentioned seven proposals for how men can read the Bible. Are these seven things that you're always keeping in mind when you're reading the Bible? Are, are there any that you struggle with? Are there any that you're better with? Um, in some ways, I've touched on a good number of them already in this interview, right? About reading the Bible with a kind of openness and vulnerability, etc. I think I do practice. These grow out of my own best practices. I don't think I remember to practice all of them. It's not a, it's not a list. I, I listed them here largely for purposes of let's say readers or discussion groups to sort of test themselves a little bit. What are they, what are the sort of the principles that I use when I read the Bible, when I struggle with it? Um, So I think it's really important. And I know this is very complex and we don't have time to, but I think it's important dispositionally to let the Bible have the first word. Um. And that's not easy to come to it with a kind of disposition of openness and and learning before we take issue with it. <laughs> we will remember, don't separate this from wrestling. But I think it's important to allow ourselves to be addressed before we tell the Bible what we think it should say if it really wants to be the word of God. Because we already know what the word of God is. <laughs> so that, that's, that's something that you forget again and again and have to remind yourself of. I think it's important to read the Bible with an open ear, not only to hearing the word of God, but to hearing each other. And you, you mentioned before the, the global body of Christ I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm involved in the Mennonite World Conference. And boy, you know, you've got, you've got a range of churches with traditions that is almost uh, incomprehensible. What holds us together are these shared convictions. And one of them is uh, the source of those shared convictions, which is the scriptures. And usually when you appeal to the Bible, it's a basis for a fight as much as it is for agreement. But it is the, you might say, God-given arena in which we struggle for light and insight. And so there's no shortcut to this. So we, we listen for God, but we also listen for the word of God in the interpretations of our sisters and brothers, especially those who don't agree with us. Uh, mm-hmm. Especially those whose life experience has given them insights or resistances or cautions uh, 
that are different from what we bring. One little example. I grew up without guns in the house. Uh, so when I, I did my dissertation on, part of my dissertation was on the last chapter of Ephesians and the armor of God. Well, that's, been, that's a very rich and insightful text. I did some Bible study in Guatemala, which had just come through a civil war. The country was awash in guns. They knew about war. They knew about weaponry. And one of the people just said, no. This will not work for us. Hmm. I'll never forget that because I suddenly realized how much our life experience has to do with how we, how we enter the text. So that every time I've worked with this text, I have that brother ringing in my ear. And there are many other examples we could give to this, whether it's around sexuality or gender or uh, wealth mm -hmm. uh, or privilege or all those kinds of things. It's really important not to have a homogeneous Bible study group you're a part of, if I could put it that metaphorically. Mm -hmm. um, if you'll allow me, I want, to talk, I want to mention one text that I think sums this up for me that I didn't talk about, sadly, in the chapter, but it's become a kind of my, my text. It's, it's a wonderful text from the uh, prophet Isaiah. From, it's, it's one of the servant songs, in, uh, in this case, in chapter 50. And, and, and I'm going to, just a few verses here. The Lord God has given me the tongue of a teacher. Oh, I thought, hey, that's me. That's what I've been doing all my life. And then I realized the translation can just as well be, the Lord has given me the tongue of, a, of one who learns. Or the way the New Jerusalem Bible has, the Lord has given me a disciple's tongue. And I thought, wow, how rich is that? I better never be a teacher who is not a learner. So I think that relates to how we approach the scriptures. Do we allow ourselves to be spoken to? To know how to sustain the weary with a word. That's why I need this gift. To learn to sustain the weary with a word. I love that. Is the Bible sustaining for us also in our search for masculinity? Morning by morning, God wakens my ear to listen like a disciple, like a learner. Every day you wake up, your first thing is not to tell the world the way it should be, but to have your ears open to what God wants to reveal to you. The Lord God has opened my ear and I have not resisted. I have not turned away. That's what I mean with reading the Bible with deliberate vulnerability. Hmm. Reading the Bible non-resistantly. And I think that relates back to what you're saying uh, a little bit earlier about letting the Bible have, have the first word. And I think that's a really important reminder for us, say we're sitting in church or we sit down with our Bible and we're like, oh, I'm familiar with this text. Uh, 
But I think it's it's an important reminder to let let the Bible have that first word and not have any assumptions going into what you're going to hear from from this reading. And there will be plenty to wrestle with after we've listened. <laughs> right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, just my last question for you, Tom. I'm, I'm wondering what kind of role models did you have growing up? You mentioned that you didn't have any guns in the house. You shared a little bit about what that was like. Um, but what other role models did you have and did they leave any impact for your vision of, of a healthy masculinity? Yeah. Uh, you know, I listened, that, that was a great question. Uh, and when you sent me that question for me to think about, uh, the person who came, I, I could have probably mentioned a number of uh, folks, uh, but the person who came most immediately and most forcefully to mind was my own father, who passed away just before COVID started at 99. Wow. Um, I think of him as a model uh, in the sense that he was a full and both vibrant and fragile human being. I, I never thought of him as sort of perfect in that sense. And I'm very grateful for that because Lord knows neither am I. Um, I don't want to generalize to include you, but I know that that puts my dad and me in the same place. Um, but I think about, I think about him uh, as a model precisely in his um, humility in his love and his caring, something that emerged more and more fully as he entered old age and his own fragility and so on. Um, it's boundless gratitude. He said, thank you when you hadn't done anything yet. Um, uh, and I kept thinking about that. Uh, he was a minister his whole adult life. And early on in his career, I was always impressed by his powerful preaching, his glorious singing, and his administrative, like he was the image, you might say, of the successful man. Hmm. And then he lost his hearing. And he could hardly hear people. And his whole work was, was ministering to people. So he had to, he had to lean in and watch people's faces really carefully in order to hear with his hearing aids, but to also to read lips, to watch the face, to take in what somebody was saying. And his ministry, in some ways, exploded, hmm. but in a whole different way. His sermons weren't polished the way they used to be. There was a kind of vulnerability to his speaking, but people felt people felt they had access to him. I don't know whether you are familiar or uh, those who will view this video are familiar with Henry Nouwen's uh, writings, but one of his books I thought was worth the title, The Wounded Healer. My dad was a wounded healer. And when you think about it, that's, that's who we've been talking about when we've described Jesus or Paul, or any of these strange marginal men. They are models for us, not so much in their strength, but also in their deep, deep vulnerability, because that's where they touch base with the rest of us. So I think, I think, of, um, I think of my dad as 
as a wonderful model of masculinity. And I'm so grateful that I was able to tell him that um, before he passed away. Hmm. Um, and I can just hear him say, thank you. <laughs> so, yeah. That's, that's, that's special and, and beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Tom. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, we're, we're out of time here, unfortunately, but uh, uh, thank you very much for, for your spending your, your time with us today. Uh, before you do go, do you have any sending thoughts to, to send us into our day, Tom? I, don't, I think I've probably taken up way more bandwidth than I should have to begin with. But uh, let me just again thank Don and... Uh, Steve, uh, the editors, but also you, Cedric, and Theatre of the Beat for helping to sort of bring this discussion into the public uh, sphere. So I'm very grateful for the gift of having been able to participate in this project. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for your chapter. So thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. Take care. Peaceful at Heart was recorded in the city of Takaranto, the land covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. This is the Dish with One Spoon territory. The Dish with One Spoon is a treaty between the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and Haudenosaunee that bound them to share the territory and protect the land. Subsequent indigenous nations and peoples, Europeans, and all newcomers have been invited into this treaty in the spirit of peace, friendship, and respect. We all eat out of the dish, and all of us that share this territory with one spoon. We want to acknowledge the ancestral lands and waterways of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Seneca, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Takaranto is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. We wish to thank them and any other nations who cared for this land. Colonization is a continuing form of oppression, so it is important that we acknowledge the lands and digital spaces that we are holding and taking up. We remember the acknowledged and unacknowledged, recorded and unrecorded, past, present, and future. We are all treaty people. Peaceful at Heart was produced and edited by myself, Cedric Martin. It was made possible thanks to Mennonite Central Committee, Mennonite Church Eastern Canada, Be in Christ Church of Canada, Theatre of the Beat, and of course, by Mennonite Men. To find more resources, head to MennoniteMen.org.